Building Trust in Government is a monthly podcast sponsored by MITRE and its Center for Data-Driven Policy, informing national policy with objective, nonpartisan insights. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast series, Building Trust in Government, a conversation with leaders in government, industry, academia, and the nonprofit community on how to create better outcomes through policy and partnerships. I'm Jim Cook, MITRE Vice President for Strategic Engagement and Partnerships. Today's conversation is gonna focus on the federal workforce and opportunities and challenges with the changing nature of work. I'm really honored to have as my guest today, Gene Dodaro, Comptroller General of the United States and Head of the Government Accountability Office. Gene, welcome, it's great to see you. It's very good to be with you, Jim, to discuss this important topic. So Gene, you have a unique perspective on this issue, both in terms of your role reviewing the executive branch agencies and advising Congress, and as a leader for a large legislative branch agency yourself. I'm anxious to draw on both perspectives during our discussion today. So let's start with the first question. It's about the future of work. The pandemic had a huge impact on the workforce and the workplace. One potentially enduring change is the use of hybrid work arrangements, including telework. How do you feel about this in terms of the federal workforce and what's been your approach at GAO? With regard to the federal workforce, as you know, Jim, it's very diverse in terms of the missions of the agencies and the type of workforce that they have. You have a number of agencies that don't lend themselves to telework, whether it's the customs inspections at airports and borders, you got the border security, you have obviously our our defense, DOD, the the, uh, military component of it. You uh, have TSA, uh, the Transportation Security Administration people, present at airports for inspections. And then you have agencies that have to interact with the public that may not have uh, access to computers or broadband, let's say Social Security Administration for disability and and Social Security benefits and the VA with the disabled individuals. And they can use telework in some of these cases. So as, as it relates to the federal workforce, you have a component that can work hybrid. And I think that, that that was proven during the pandemic. And each agency is gonna to have to figure out for itself, depending on its mission. And you almost have to do by type of job. Some jobs, the analytic jobs uh, and others lend themselves to hybrid work more than some of the other missions where our physical presence is, is absolutely necessary for the government to accomplish its mission. So I think each agency will work through this uh, we have work underway to look at how the federal government will be adjusting across the spectrum of responsibilities in the future of work hybrid environment. As it relates to GAO, uh, we, before the pandemic, Jim, allowed people to telework up to 66 out of 80 hours every two weeks. So we were already in a hybrid environment. You know, much of our work can be done uh, by, uh, you know, computers, uh, most of the information now is digitized and we can, you can analyze it anywhere uh, as long as you have a computer and, and things. And so uh, we will continue in the future to have a hybrid work environment. But it's also important for GAO people to be present physically when needed. When we go to make direct observations across the United States, as well as in other countries where the our uh, military is operating or state department foreign policy considerations so we're going to have a telework 
and a remote work option. And one of the things we learned, Jim, during the, the um, uh, pandemic is we went to a totally remote option for hiring interns mm-hmm. in GAO. And that opened up areas where we were hiring interns where we didn't have a physical field office present and allowed us to reach more diverse candidates. So we're going to keep that mm-hmm. approach going forward. Good. Sounds like a positive outcome. Well, another impact of the pandemic and the post-pandemic period has been this increase in retirements and departures. Some are referring to it as the great resignation. With this occurring on top of pre-existing shortfalls in key areas like cybersecurity, for instance, the ability to recruit qualified and diverse talent is more important than ever. So two questions. What would you like to see from OPM from a policy perspective to address this? Well, I think uh, we've encouraged them through our work to focus on the most critical skill gaps across the government. Uh, It's very important for them to do this. And they've been uh, having uh, continuing efforts to address this in in, in what's called closing the skill gap initiative at the Office of Personnel Management. And they focused on some critical ones uh, in the beginning in terms of, as you mentioned, cybersecurity, acquisition personnel, human resource specialists, and some others. So you have some government-wide areas where skill gaps are there. And then you have some agency-specific skill gaps uh, that we've identified and others have identified. Now, one of the things that OPM has done during the pandemic is to allow for certain agencies for certain uh, skills and occupations to have a um, uh, direct hire authority to the agencies. And this has allowed the agencies to have more flexibility and different options in order to do this. So I think that was a good move on their part. They've just recently extended that direct hire authority until March 2023. And I think that's necessary. And the Office of Personnel Management, uh, I'm very pleased that we now have a confirmed uh, Senate-approved director that hasn't happened in a while, who's full-time focused on this. I've talked to Karen Achuga several times. I know she's committed to addressing this issue. So having a committed uh, senior leader of that organization is good. Was also pleased to see this one of the top areas in the president's management agenda was the focus on the federal workforce. This is a critical area and it's very important. I've been long concerned about the state of the federal workforce and our ability to recruit, retain people across the spectrum of the executive branch agencies. And uh, we have a number of of very specific recommendations to get uh, more focused on this, uh, to get more up-to-date classification standards, to streamline the hiring authorities that they have. We did a report a few years ago uh, that of the 105 hiring authorities that are available to agencies, there's only about 20 of them that they use to hire 90% of the people. So I think it could create a lot of confusion if you have too many hiring authorities and it's not streamlined. Now, with regard to GAO, uh, we've not had uh, any uh, change in our retention of people. So there's not a, you know, as it's, it relates to the great resignation, our attrition has been normal, which is around 6%. Uh, you know, give or take a percent here or there over the years. And uh, so it's very good. Since the pandemic started in, in March 2020, we've hired over 700 people. 
We adjusted to onboard people remotely. We've had a lot of people we've hired from public policy analysts to scientists. Uh, and so I'm very pleased with our ability to recruit and retain people. And, uh, you know, we use a internship program uh, as well uh, to obtain probably about at least 40, 50 percent of our uh, permanent hires at the entry level standpoint. So everything's been pretty good. In fact, we've grown GAO a bit during the pandemic. Oh, good, good. Well, so you touched on this a bit when you were talking about OPM and your concern, your long concern about the workforce issue. Human capital management has long been a focus on the GAO high risk list. Before we dig into this in a little bit more detail, can you just remind the audience what the high risk list is, how agencies should view it, and why specifically human capital, ma capital management is on the list? Yeah, the uh, high risk list was created in 1990 at the request of Congress, both a, a bipartisan basis from the Senate, uh, as well as the House, uh, the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, the House Oversight and Reform. And there had been some scandals in the federal government in the late 1980s, both at the Housing and Urban Development Department and over at DOD and some of the procurement areas. And Congress then began asking questions about, well, why didn't we uh, see some of these critical areas coming? And so uh, they turned to GAO and said, can you identify for us areas that are susceptible to fraud, waste, abuse, mismanagement in the federal government and alert us to those areas? So we started that with a list of 14 areas in 1990. We have criteria that we vetted and published with the executive branch in order to uh, make clear why we put something on the high risk list, what are the criteria and what are the criteria for coming off of the list. Uh, since that period of time, we've added 50 some areas. We've taken 27 areas off. Uh, there's about 38 areas on the high risk list right now. Uh, and we also over time, Jim, in addition to fraud, waste, abuse and mismanagement, we added areas that need a broad based transformation. And some of the areas that are on the list are the Medicaid program, the Medicare program. You know, I designated cybersecurity as a high risk area across the entire federal government in 1997, and it remains on the list today. It's got much more complicated. We added critical infrastructure protection in 2003. Uh, and so uh, there's a lot of food safety, regulation of medical devices, so it touches upon areas that are important to public health and safety, as well as areas that could be managed much better. And if you solve these problems, you can save billions of dollars. And over time, we've saved over half a trillion dollars in financial benefits as a result of implementing the high risk recommendations. But you can improve services to the public, health and safety, and you can also help uh, increased trust in government uh, that it'll perform more effectively. That's great. I want to pick back up on this after the break, but right now we're going to take a quick break. I'm Jim Cook, and you're listening to Building Trust in Government. When we come back, we'll talk more about the federal workforce, the GAO high-risk list, and actions that our guest, Gene Dodaro, is taking within his own agency, the GAO. 
The world is full of challenges, and at MITRE, we're ready to take them head on. We're working on some of the world's most difficult problems. We're here to create a safer world. We are a world-class team of innovators, thought leaders, visionaries, and doers. We know we are called to do more, do better, think differently, and move faster. And at MITRE, we're meeting those challenges every day. We're solving problems for a safer world. Discover MITRE.org. We're back now on Building Trust in Government. I'm Jim Cook with MITRE, and I'm here with Gene Dodaro from GAO, and we're discussing federal workforce opportunities and challenges. So Gene, before the break, we were talking about the GAO high-risk list and where human capital management challenge fits in. The high-risk list addresses workforce topics in a variety of ways. In addition to having its own key focus area, strategic human capital management, it's also a key element of many other high-risk list focus areas like cybersecurity, for instance. What do you think the key issues are that require policy ideas or where agencies can better leverage existing policies and authorities to address the human capital management challenge? At the government-wide level, uh, Jim, OPM needs to exert strong leadership, and I'm glad to see that beginning to happen now. Uh, that's very important because they are a key partner in helping agencies, giving them authorities, giving them policy guidance, training programs, and to help focus on areas where you have a government-wide high-risk shortage, like the cybersecurity area that we've mentioned, you know, uh, just a few minutes ago, um, and the acquisition area. Uh, but then you have, of the well, last time we did a major update, the high-risk areas of the 35 areas on the list, 22 of them were on in part because of critical skill gaps uh, in those areas. You know, obviously cybersecurity is a key issue with the uh, Department of Health and um, Department of Homeland Security uh, and the uh, uh, computer leadership that they exert across the government. But you have uh, areas in medical professionals, for example, at the Veterans Administration terms of uh, doctors and nurses, they need to recruit NASA, you need cost analysts, you need engineering skills, uh, Department of Interior, you need people, engineers and experts, petroleum engineers in the oil and gas area that's on the high risk list as well. And so there's a lot in F the Food and Drug Administration, FDA needs people to do inspections in foreign countries. You know, without good people and without the right type of expertise and experience, the government is not going to be successful in efficiently and effectively carrying out its mission. So the high risk designation was intended to underscore that point and to prompt the government to act both on a government wide level as well as each individual agency that has an issue. Mm -hmm. Do you think they have the authorities that they need, or are there additional authorities that you would like to see to facilitate or enable making some changes? I, I think they have the authorities that they need by and large, Jim. I mean, we'll continue to look at that and advise the Congress. The Congress has given them a lot of flexibility to deal with this issue because the Congress recognizes the importance of this issue. Uh, and OPM has a lot of authority vested in itself that it can use to help the agencies as well. So I, I don't think it's a matter of that. I think it's a matter of focus, uh, sustained leadership to address these issues. The government has to be more 
uh, assertive and aggressive in recruiting uh, on campuses. I think they could be more effective. And I've encouraged them, like at GAO, we have an educator's advisory panel. And these are uh, deans of schools that we recruit from. We have a national recruiting program. And I think the federal government can do a better job in this area to bring people in uh, and to get them engaged, particularly younger people that we need for succession planning purposes to not only meet critical skill gaps, uh, but also, uh, you know, people that we uh, need to provide the leadership for the federal government moving forward into the future. So you just used the term leadership, and that's where I want to pivot to next. You've not just focused on the workforce itself. You've also tackled building leadership talent. Can you discuss some of your strategies for doing this at GAO, especially since you're now just three years left in your 15-year term? Yes. I mean, having the right type of, of senior career leadership is absolutely pivotal. We have an uh, executive candidate development program at GAO whereby people are competitively selected based on their technical skills, their managerial skills, and their people skills, Jim, in order to be able to manage and lead people. They go through an 18 to 24-month period where we actually put them in a job as an acting director. So they're, so they're carrying out the responsibilities of the job they aspire to and we think they're qualified for. They testify before Congress. They lead audits and engagements. And then we have them go through a, a program at, that's uh, run by American University, where they go through as a cohort to learn leadership skills. And so I've had a 10-year succession plan in place for our senior executive service. So by the time I leave, we'll have a strong uh, you know, seasoned core of people. I'll have replaced most of the people who, from the baby boom generation who decided to retire during this period of time. So we'll have a workforce that's well postured to go into the future. And I'm also focused at all levels. Actually, 39% of our workforce at GAO is 40 years old or younger. We've revamped our training curriculum at GAO to focus on leadership skills at all levels in the organization to help people grow professionally and into a path where they can take on additional responsibilities as they mature in their, in their development. Yeah, that long-term focus is pretty unique. So you've talked a little bit already about um, some things that agency leaders could do. Are there additional recommendations that you'd make to agency leaders when they ask you about how to fill vacancies and skill gaps, as well as recruiting and hiring programs with an eye towards diversity and inclusion? Anything else you would offer? Yeah, but the key things that I, and I talk to agency leaders about this a lot. Number one is have a strong internship program. Number two, uh, you need to have a diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility plan, a strategic plan with a focus on recruiting and retaining those areas. You know, most of, you know, I've had this my whole tenure as Comptroller General as a focus on diversity and inclusion and, um, you know, accessibility and equity. We created people value so people feel respected, valued, and treated fairly. The trick here, too, is not to just recruit a, a, a diverse workforce. You need to retain that diverse workforce. So people need to see people in leadership positions that look like them. You know, our country is becoming more diverse. Where we recruit from is more diverse. Our, the Congress, the clients we serve is more diverse. 
than ever. And so I've been preparing for this for a long time. We have over 58% women now in GAO. We have over a third uh, minorities among our workforce, but we keep working on it all the time to make sure. And I've offered our key leaders in diversity, equity, and inclusion to work with executive branch agencies and share our experiences. You know, we've been consistently ranked as one of the top places to work in the federal government. Last two years, we've been number one in mid-sized agencies by the Partnership for Public Service rankings. When they were doing rankings on diversity, we were number one in terms of support uh, for diversity. So I'm very proud of our record there. It's been a key priority of mine and I'm willing to share uh, whatever experiences we have with others so that they can help improve their efforts. So for the last question, Gene, um, this is the coming attractions question. As we tape this, you're in the process of preparing for the 2023 release of the updated GAO high-risk list. What's the latest with your update and when can we expect to see it? And if there's anything you want to preview in terms of workforce uh, particularly. Uh, sure. Uh, the, um, the high risk list is formally updated with the beginning of each new Congress, so every two years. So we'll be getting ready to release the latest update, probably be around March, uh, 2023, maybe a little earlier. Usually it's February, March, depending on the timing with the Congress to schedule. Uh, we added three areas out of cycle from the last update due to the pandemic. So I'll mention those quickly. Emergency loan programs at S Small Business Administration, the Unemployment Insurance Program, Labor Department, the HH uh, Department of Health and Human Services, um, Leadership and Coordination for Public Health Emergencies. So those areas, and they all have uh, human resource implications in terms of trying to have the right type of people and skills, contractor, federal government balance appropriately to deal with emergencies and situations. The, the unemployment insurance has a state angle as well because they administer those programs. So you'll see more uh, human capital areas featured in this year's update on the high risk area because it's so pivotal uh, to helping areas uh, address the high-risk challenges and improve the efficiency and effectiveness of their operations. Well, we look forward to seeing it. Um, I'd like to thank you for joining us today and talking about the federal workforce opportunities and challenges. Thanks for sharing your thoughts, and in particular, thanks for your leadership on this critical issue. Thank you very much, Jim. It's a, been a pleasure to be with you. I invite our listeners to join us each month. We have upcoming episodes on the practical implications of quantum technology and other relevant diverse policy areas. I'm Jim Cook, and you're listening to Building Trust in Government, brought to you by MITRE's Center for Data-Driven Policy on Federal News Network. Building Trust in Government is sponsored by MITRE and its Center for Data-Driven Policy, bringing evidence-based insights to government policymaking. Discover more at MITRE.org slash policy center.